Lord, we do pray that you'd revive the church in Canada. We do pray for a fresh movement of your spirit. We do pray, Lord, for thousands to flood into the kingdom. We do pray, Lord, for signs and wonders following. We pray, Lord, for innovative communication of the ancient gospel. We pray, Lord, for ministries that fight injustice. We pray, Lord, for your spirit to move in the corridors of power. Lord, we pray. Hello and welcome to another episode on the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. It's Jaden coming to you from beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. Our team is enjoying the last couple weeks that we have of the summer, as are you. Whether you're basking in the sun, on vacation somewhere, or preparing for the fall, we hope this episode finds you well. It's good to be with you. Today we have Pete Gregg with us on the podcast. I loved this conversation. Let me tell you a bit about Pete. To you, he might be most well-known as the founder of 24-7 Prayer, an international, interdenominational prayer movement. And I love their vision. Listen to this. To revive the church and rewire the culture through nonstop, night and day prayer. Since it began two decades ago, thousands of communities and churches have taken part in 24-7 prayer in over half the countries on earth. Now, in Pete's words, he is not the founder, but the bewildered instigator. Those are his own words. He shares the story of how it all started in this conversation. It's very compelling. Between you and me, I think he's not giving himself enough credit. I'll let you decide, though. Pete's also the senior pastor of Emmaus Road in Guildford, England, and on the side, he is making the one-hour-long trip to London to teach at St. Melitus Theological College. And if that all wasn't enough, Pete is also an author. He's written the books God on Mute and Red Moon Rising, as well as some courses that we'll talk about when the interview is done. Now, I think the best way to describe this conversation you're about to hear is that it was raw and beautiful. It feels like Pete has no pretense. He's so honest. It's clear that he cares so much about what's at stake for all of you listening in. And it, it almost felt like he was just chatting as one pastor to another at a local coffee shop or something. I found it so helpful and convicting, envisioning all of those good things. I hope that you feel the same. Okay, here's a quick word from our friends at the Canadian Bible Society who so generously sponsored this episode. A big thanks to the team there. Then we'll jump right in with Jason and Pete. Today's episode is made possible by our friends at the Canadian Bible Society. We wanna highlight a resource they developed called the Bible Course, a course that was created to help the average person engage with God's word in a deeper way. The Bible course includes eight weeks of video teaching that are all designed to connect the events, books, and characters of scripture together into one big story. This course can easily be run in small groups and even as a great follow-up to something like Alpha if you're currently running that. To check out the first video for free and to learn more about the course, just head to biblesociety.ca slash thebiblecourse and you'll find all you need. That's biblesociety.ca slash thebiblecourse. Pete, it's such a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you so much for making time. Tell us where where you're meeting us from today. It's so nice to be with you, Jason. Thanks for having me. I am sitting on an island off the south coast of England called the Isle of Wight. I'm looking out right now over the ocean, it, and, and I can see a lighthouse just flashing on the horizon. Mm. So it's a, it's a beautiful spot. 
Hmm. And this is a spot you said that you've been able to host people and do mentorship and retreat. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, you know, my, my friend Tim Hughes had a really simple picture for me. You know, sometimes those simple things are the most profound. And he just said, I see you putting your arm around people. Hmm. Um, and I, I realized that a lot of people don't really want my wisdom or, you know, they certainly don't want my executive prowess. They just want to be encouraged and they want to know they're doing okay. And they want to be listened to and believed in. And so um, we, we radically redefined our life just uh, two or three years ago. And we split our time four days a week. We live on a, on a riverboat, on a barge, on, on the river that runs through our city. And um, we love it. We, we think a lot about Psalm 23. You know, he, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And we chug up and down it. To, you know, the, the barges are the slowest form of mechanized transport. They, they, they move at three miles per hour. So dog walkers overtake you. It's just, it, it drives you insane if you have any A-type tendencies. And then we spend the other three days a week on this island and we do a lot of leadership uh, retreats, mentoring, Um just connecting hearts. And I, I do a lot of my writing here as well. And I do Sabbath here. So it, mm. it, it kind of, it works well. Mm. And, uh, Beautiful. You know, and what, you know, Jason, one of the things was I was passing on, um, you know, when, when you start things, there's only two outcomes. They either fail or they succeed. <laughs> and if they <laughs> succeed and they grow, you get busier and busier. And, hopefully you get a little better at what you do year by year. And then eventually, if you're not careful, you just go pop because, you know, it's all unsustainable. And I realized a few years ago, I needed to start passing on responsibility. I'm 53 mm. years old. I guess I was about 50 then. And, you know, I, I, I the first of all, the religious order that I'd helped revive the order of the mustard seed I passed on to a brilliant Canadian lady called Jill Weber from Hamilton, Ontario, who is nailing it. She is, it, the whole thing is so much better now she's leading it. And then I knew that with the local church that I pastor, I needed to do what you North Americans would call bring through an executive pastor. It's not a phrase we like over here, but I kind of get it. And so um, and then we, we brought a guy through to lead 24-7 as like a CEO type role, you know, because, mm. I, I, you know, I'm not good at that stuff. I'm not bad enough for them to fire me, but, you know, it's just a joy not to be doing that anymore. And then I went and got some coaching and this guy, I said to this, this, this leadership development guy, prepare me to be the face of a bunch of decisions I disagree with, <laughs> you know. Because that's what it means, right? If you agree yeah. with everything they do, you haven't actually given any power away. But equally, if the moment they do something you disagree with, you you know you throw your toys out the cot, then you're orphaning things that you've helped to parent. Mm. And he he did all three sixties and all that stuff on me. And the outcome was, he said, um, "You need to give these people more space. Your voice is loud when it's in a when you're in a room." 
And what you need to do is just be in the room less. And so that's that's why we've developed this rhythm, four days on mm. the river, being a being a senior pastor, you know, helping to, you know, bring some shape to 24-7 and three days a week where we, we change pace and it's far more organic. And um, my friends will say we prefer you on the island, you know. <laughs> so there you go. That's, uh, that's that's how literally I've taken that that transition. I think it's really important conversation because I think the idea of transition is romanticized. Like, what does it feel like to be a leader who empowers people right. to take the thing that you've invested in? What is it? How has it felt for you? Like, what's been the journey? Like, some of the topography of your the movements of your heart as you've gone. Like, hey, wow, these things still exist fifteen, ten, twenty years later, and you're giving them away. I love how you said that. Like. They're making decisions that you wouldn't make. And it's like, it's so obvious, but it's like, that's hard. That's really hard to watch. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me a bit about what that journey has been like for you. It's been um, lonely and difficult and wonderful. It's been lonely mm -hmm. because almost no one gets this right. And I found I had very few role models. I had lots of examples of people who refused to relinquish any power. In Christian leadership, we always pretend we don't have power and it's nonsense. It's much healthier to admit that we do have power and then yeah. ask questions about how we steward that well. Okay? Right. So we, we all know people who just refuse to relinquish power. And, and, you know, and then, so it's lonely. But then on the other hand, it's lonely because there are others who are so terrified of becoming that that they effectively chuck the baton at, at, at the next generation and just leave them, just orphan them. And the organization feels abandoned. And, and it's probably impoverished because one would hope you've still got some kind of contribution to make, even if it's not the senior one, right? And so trying to work out how do I um, not orphan the things that I've started but also not stay in control of them forever. Mm. I had very few, very few role models of that. And I think a lot of the reasons why many senior leaders, especially mega church leaders, end up getting in a real mess is they don't know. They just, it's not a healthy model. It's not a healthy context for any human being to live in. And they don't know their way out. So, so lonely. Then it's, it's been difficult because here's, here's the honest truth. We kid ourselves that we don't put any security in our role and our title right. and our power, and we do. And so you definitely have those moments you think, I mean, I just had it literally last night. We're in the process of appointing a new national director in the UK. It's a big job for 24-7 prayer. And I had to write to someone and say, would it be okay for me to be involved in the process? But I totally understand if you don't want my voice in that mix. And, and you know, that's that's difficult because mm. part of you thinks that I founded this thing. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. Yeah, I appreciate and that. And then, but then finally and importantly, it's been wonderful because this is the dream, right? I, I'm getting to focus on the things that I can make as my unique contribution instead of spending a good chunk of my life doing things that I'm pretty average at, like HR and fundraising and running conferences 
and um, overseeing, you know, small group structures and strategies. I, I, I can do it, but there's a lot of people who can do that better mm-hmm. than me. So I, I, I'm incredibly blessed and fundamentally uh, overshadowing the loneliness of the process and the difficulty of what I've laid down is a great sense of freedom and joy mm-hmm. at um, still being involved, but not feeling that it's all on me anymore. It's just a beautiful thing. Hmm. One of the things that I've appreciated from a distance watching your life and everyone's so uniquely called and and this might not be find resonance with even most people listening, but I feel like you've, maybe it'd be appropriate to say carved a unique pathway for pastoral leadership, being in a local church, leading a local church with your wife and friends, but also leading a prayer movement, also being a starter, there's an entrepreneurial spirit that's in you. And uh, I think one time I even heard you use the language of aposta monastic. So these converging different elements. And I just love to hear you reflect a little bit on how you've, not that this is in any way prescriptive for others, but as you've sort of felt how you've had to kind of carve for yourself, maybe a unique path that maybe doesn't fit what people typically picture a local church pastor might function within. Yeah, I mean, there's, I could come at that from a lot of different ways, but you know, the most important thing to say is most of what I do is an accident, and I feel bewildered. Um, my older brother, who has a very responsible job as an attorney in Oxford, still looks at me and says, "Do you have a job yet?" So, you know, like, um, don't don't be too impressed. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think. Um, I would see, you know, what you've just framed, I would see it as concentric circles and not as parallel tracks. I I drive everything through the local church. I think it's incredibly unhealthy when, um, you know, pe- people are investing itinerant, you know, translocal and are not rooted and outworking in the local. I had the privilege of, of working very, very closely with Nikki Gumbel for uh, seven or eight years. You know, it's very striking that when I led the 7 a.m. Tuesday morning prayer meeting every week, Nikki was there, but not hmm. leading it. You know, he, he, has, he had 101 excuses not to be at a funny little prayer meeting. But, you know, he, he, he says, and he's right, you know, if Alpha doesn't work here, it doesn't work anyway. You know, you have to outwork the stuff. When you get on an aeroplane, you immediately become an expert. That's a very dangerous thing. Um, and and when you're having to outwork stuff at home, no one thinks you're an expert. And that's a very good thing, you know. So, um, so I am a local church guy. The mm. church is the missions agency. The church is the social transformation agency, um, and so on. So, um, and I only got into what I'm doing because, you know, 24-7 began because we were one local church that was bad at prayer Hmm. that made the embarrassing discovery that it's the key to everything. It's one of only about three things we actually have to do. And we thought we should try and learn how to pray. So we started a prayer room. And then that we used to say went viral. I guess you can't say that anymore. And 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 now twenty four seven prayer is in hundred. I can't remember, but over a hundred countries. And and it's you know we've been praying nonstop for twenty two years. 
and that's been a thrill. But I want you to understand mm. that all of that is just a fractal that has come out from one local church trying to learn how to pray. Beautiful. So it's concentric circles rather than, you know, competing tracks. And maybe your story, just to draw all those threads together, Jason, is I remember quite early in ministry, I got a, a, a big break. You know, there was this worship band just down the road from us that suddenly writing songs that everyone was singing. They were called Delirious. Um, although back then they were called the Cutting Edge Band. And uh, I remember we got a bit fed up with them because they were our mates and suddenly they, you know, they started trying to charge us money to come and lead worship. I'm like, <laughs> who do you think you are, Martin Smith? You know, anyway. They they started doing these open air concerts on the seafront in their their seaside town there, Little Hampton, and maybe seven eight thousand people would come, and I was the preacher. They'd call me in to preach, and so it was actually pretty amazing. The sun setting over the ocean, thousands of people singing those songs we now you know know, History Maker, and you know all of those. Did you feel the mountains tremble? All that. And um, I would get to stand up, preach the gospel, and baptize people. Wow. And we had TV companies filming, I think, two years, like proper TV companies, not Christian ones. And, um, you know, it was a big deal. And I remember after one, um, I felt like I'd done really well. <laughs> You're not supposed to admit that, are you? But I just felt like... That was great. A lot of people became Christians. We baptized a lot of people on the spot. You know, I came out with this killer lie and I said, you know, if you want to give your life to Jesus, you know, we brought this big paddling pool. We're going to baptize you now. And if you're, if you're thinking I haven't brought a change of clothes, you honestly haven't got what it takes to be a follower of Jesus. Don't bother. Like, you know, it was, it was, it was rock and roll. It was great. People got healed on the spot. It was amazing. And I went to the pub afterwards with my friend Dan and I said to him, hey, how did you think I did? And I was just fishing for a compliment. And he said, this is his words. He said, Pete, you look like an idiot. Like you, you had sunglasses on and it was raining. You just looked an idiot. That was his entire feedback to me. And here's the thing. And my wife is just bringing me a cup of tea because this is oh, so kind. It's so kind. And and here's the thing. A few years later, my wife, Sammy, gets very, very sick and she nearly dies. And we were in this terrible space where we were waiting her having brain surgery. And I mm. thought she was going to die. And it was my friend, Dan, that came around. The, the guy who told me I looked an idiot when I was on TV, you know, and we started talking and somewhere as we talked, it turned into a time of prayer. I literally don't know at what point we just started. I started talking to God, not to Dan. And I, and I picked a fight with God. I said to God, I, I know I'm supposed to pray, not my will, but yours, but I'm just not doing it. I'm not interested in Christianity. I'm interested in my wife living and my kids knowing their mum. And if that's not in your master plan, I don't care. I'm fighting you for this, you know? And it was probably the most honest prayer I'd ever prayed. And I was weeping. Dan was weeping. 
And I think as leaders, we all need that. We need Dan. We need mm. the people who tell us we are idiots when we are getting arrogant. And the people who will be by our sides when we're totally broken and don't know how to be good humans, let alone good Christian leaders. Mm. So everything must be rooted in the local or we will end up as ghosts of ourselves in the long haul. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that, man. And um, you said something earlier. You said, uh, we haven't stopped praying since. Like, I think some people might have thought that's a bit of hyperbole to make a point, but you literally mean there's been prayer going on constantly 24-7 since. Yeah, since 5th of September 1999, we started praying in one location, night and day. Um, and then that prayer room started spreading around the world. And now it's multiple locations. Um, and there hasn't been a moment in the last 22 years when there hasn't been, you know, continual prayer and intercession rising from a 24 seven prayer room. So we were inspired by the, you know, the Moravian Christians who prayed nonstop for over a century and then began sending out missionaries and converted John Wesley. They were the first to take the gospel to many nations. They were the first to translate the scriptures into many languages. And um, yeah, we just thought if they could pray nonstop for a hundred years, why don't we try it? a month and see what happens and mm. what happened was well we're approaching our quarter century so it's still not 100 years but it's it's been a wild ride hmm. can you talk to me a little bit about how it began to spread like this was something that you guys were just doing i loved your language we needed to learn how to pray so we started going after it and then it really began to bubble up all around the world i remember being a high school student in canada and a guy filled a room with different visuals and there was music playing. And I walked into a 24 seven prayer room that was set up at this conference and never experienced a space like that before. And, and I began to hear kind of rumors of 24 seven prayer, this, this kind of movement. And I just love to hear a little bit about that story because um, it's impacted so many lives and it's such an amazing story. And so I love, uh, love it if you'd take some time just to walk us through those, some of those early years. Yeah, thank you, Jason. It's so cool to see how lives intersect and 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 the kind of atomic seeds, you know, that we sow when 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 we try and try and walk in the paths of righteousness, you know, things that just keep generating energy for years and years. But um, we, yeah, our, our prayer room. Um, God just showed up in that place. Initially, the first few hours were really difficult, and I thought, this is the worst idea ever, and I cannot believe we're committed to a month of this. This is dreadful. Um, because I think we were still trying to do the, you know, what I call the, the toilet position praying, you know, sitting around in a circle in the, in the toilet position, like, like trying to talk to God, very long sentences. And then things began to shift. And Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said, prayer is an art that only the Holy Spirit can teach us. Pray until you can pray. And I, we began to learn to pray. 
through the, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, um, yeah, graffiti just went up all over the walls and the floor and the ceiling as people wrote their prayers on the wall. As a pastor, I found it incredibly moving to see the pain, the mm. lament, you know, the, the agony that was resident in the heart of the community I helped to lead. Um, realizing there's nothing on Sunday that can facilitate the expression of that, but the prayer room could. Um, we started to see miracles as well. And, and that's a lot of our story, the paradox of absolutely seeing miracles. You know, I, I believe in miracles. I believe in, you know, in the power of intercessory prayer. I believe in spiritual warfare. You know, I don't just believe, you know, if, if, if I get a terminal diagnosis before my time, don't send me someone who knows how to stare at a candle. Please send me someone who knows how to move heaven and earth with authority. But if I'm in my last hour, please take that person out of the room and send me someone who knows how to contemplate, you know, I, I want both. And so we saw great miracles and great breakthroughs. Um, there were angelic visitations, uh, atheists saying that they could feel the presence of God in the room. I think we began to learn, Jason, that the Holy Spirit can fill a place as well as a person, which we mm. hadn't really understood before. But it was undoubtedly true. I mean, you stepped into that room and, man, wow. you felt the presence of God. It was easier to pray in there. And it was cumulative, you know, like after a week, two weeks, a month, it was intense. Um, and then I think it was in our second or third month of continual prayer, which, by the way, is incredible because we were a church that had at best seven people at our prayer meeting. So I don't want anyone listening to this to think, this couldn't be me. It could be you. <laughs> it was us. But after two or three months, uh, and by the way, it only takes 24 people who say they'll pray an hour a day to pray nonstop for a week or a month. So in a world where 1.4 billion Muslims pray five times a day, it's not actually that radical anyway. And don't forget, Jesus often prayed all night. So, you know, if we don't sometimes do that, but we claim to be following in his footsteps, we might need to ask ourselves some questions. But I don't want to get heavy on you. <laughs> and um, so, so so we saw these miracles and we saw great pain as well. And realized that prayer was the crucible for all of that. And then, in, as I say, about the third month, it, it just began to spread. And I think at that point, our biggest dream was that maybe we would fill the year 2000. Remember, we start, started on September 5th. Uh, we might fill the year 2000 with continual prayer. And um, I, I guess, well, I know God had bigger plans, but that was, that was crazy to us. Because at that time, you, you had to go to South Korea to see night and day prayer. It was unthinkable in the West. No one was doing it. There were a few keen churches that would do a half night of prayer, maybe even a full night of prayer, but on and on, nowhere. It just wasn't a thing. But it began to spread, and it hasn't stopped. And one of the, one of the Catholic moments, I think, was I, I went into the prayer room one night. I think it was a 3 a.m. slot, which, by the way, is often the best. And I sat there, and it it, you know, I, I do have plenty of friends who don't believe that God exists. And, it, and I just thought, like, if they're right and I'm wrong, what on earth am I doing talking to a wall in a, a warehouse at 3 a.m.? 
And I began to write some words on, on the wall and they started like this. Um, so this guy comes up to me, says, what's the vision? What's the big idea? I open my mouth and the words come out like this. The vision is Jesus, dangerously, obsessively, undeniably Jesus. The vision is an army of young people. You see bones. I see an army and they're free from materialism. They laugh at nine to five little prisons. They eat crusts on Monday and caviar on Tuesday and so on. It just goes on like that. It was kind of, I drunk a lot of Red Bull um, <laughs> and, you know, it's a little intense if I'm honest. I mean, I can say this because you guys are Canadians. You understand this. I, I, I look back and go, that was pretty intense. But I left the words on on the wall. I, you know, my name wasn't on it. There was loads of graffiti up on the wall, but someone must have like written them down and emailed them to someone. The first thing I knew about it was, um, I don't know, a week or two later, I receive an email from Toronto, I think. So I'm sitting in England, actually in an office just above this first prayer room. I receive an email from Canada saying, I found this weird poem thing online and thought you'd like it. And it was, it was my own poem from the prayer room downstairs that this guy in Canada had found and thought I'd like. So then it just, it got out. It just went absolutely bananas. And, um, you know, I remember, um, you know, the uncle of a girl who was killed in the Columbine high school shootings mm. took took these words as his kind of uh, mission statement. And I remember I turned up at a conference in Spain and all these guys from Tulsa, Oklahoma, were doing this weird choreographed stomp-like dance. You know, it was all big, muscular, big booted dance. And someone was screaming. They were rapping in Spanish into the microphone. And it was about halfway through, I realized, oh, this is this is my poem thing. Like, it just went all over. And a, mm. a DJ in New York remixed it. And a DJ in Sweden remixed it. Uh, and and actually, I was I was with him. He made me record it, and um, I think we were illegally in the recording studio because we climbed in through a window. And it was the middle of the night, but I'm not sure. I was a bit scared <laughs> of this guy. But anyway, he made he made me just scream the words into a microphone. He recorded me doing it in a city called Umeå in the far north of of Sweden. Very very cold, and yeah, it just got out. It just mm. got out, and. Then and it was published in the a magazine called The Way, which is the vehicle for the underground church in China. Hundreds of thousands mm. of churches, so multiple millions of Chinese Christians. The same week it was published in The Way in China, it was used at the first ever. I don't know if you remember those call events. The call, yeah. the first one on on the Capitol Mall in Washington D.C. So they used. It was like Capitol Mall, Washington, D.C., Underground Church in China. So it just went, it went absolutely nuts. And people have literally had lines tattooed on their bodies. <laughs> and I, I don't know why. I think it was um, a call to arms. I think it was people longing for an articulation of faith that was um, such a, 
hackneyed phrase, but just radical. Like, mm-hmm. if I'm actually going to do this, it's got to be true and it's got to be worth everything, or I won't bother. So, mm. uh, yeah. So that was that was that was the vision. And um, mm. I know when we were chatting earlier, you said it was a key part of your your story. So um, that's the. Backstory. I appreciate you taking the time, Matt, because <laughs> it was it's a bizarre thing. Like it's like God grabbed hold of it. And it became, I think, also like the point of the spear for catalyzing prayer movements. Like it wasn't the, the end of itself. It was like this, the front of the spear that ended up leaving behind its wake a ton of movements. And I, again, like for me as a teenager, I was part of a prayer movement. I'd pray at my high school before school. It's like wow. five or six of us before school. And then by the time I graduated, it was more like 50 or 60 kids. Incredible. And it was one of hundreds across Canada. Mm-hmm. And the people that kind of championed that prayer movement that I was just a student caught up in were were caught up in the wake of not just twenty four seven prayer, but just sort of this. I think it was something God was doing. You know what I mean? Like sometimes I've yeah. noticed. I don't know. I don't know if you've noticed this. Like sometimes and it's harder now because of the internet. Everything happens in such real time. But yeah. God will be doing the same thing in multiple countries or moving the church. It makes me wonder. Like, what do you think the Lord's doing in in His church globally today? Do you have any insight, any sense of like what what is the thing that He's calling the church to today? <laughs> what do you think? That's a big question. It's not really a fair question. I know. I realize that because it's like there's kind of the tried and true. He's always calling us to discipleship and mission and justice. Yeah, I but mean, I do long for that fresh thing he's doing. Yeah, he's 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 for sure doing that, and he, there's no question that he's shaking mm. the church. There's no question in the West. I mean, we've got to keep distinguishing between our yes. little Western bu- bubble and global Christianity, of course. But um, you know that there is a a purifying. You know, I think the way I look at it is this, Jason, like we have been praying for the best part of half a century, come Holy Spirit. Mm. And we should expect something to happen. (laughs) I mean, not just, you know, people shaking and falling over, but we should expect the spirit of holiness to become resident in the body of Christ in a new way when you have half a century of countless millions, hmm. renewed Catholics, Pentecostals, and everything in between praying come Holy Spirit. And so I think what we are seeing is a great shaking. We see it in society, clearly, with um, corruption being exposed at, at multiple levels um, and and broken leaders, you know, you know, falling and so on. But we certainly see it in the church. And the scriptures say judgment begins with the house of the Lord. So we shouldn't be too surprised. Um, I think, you know, COVID has has obviously been an enormous challenge for all of us. And it's brought good stuff, but it's also been incredibly painful. And I, I think where I'm at as we resurface from, from the pandemic is this. We have, it's binary. We have two options. We can either circle the wagons, lick our wounds, and say, thank goodness we just about survived that and only lost 10% of our people. Or we can come out of that saying, we're going to need to really create some damage. You know, we can, mm. we, we need to come. I, I, I'm passionate that. That, that we've got to come out of this fighting, swinging. Like, 
people are asking new questions. Every single revival, I, I, I've studied revival history for 25 years. Every single revival has two things in common. Firstly, it begins with a shaking in society of some kind. No exceptions to the rule. I could, you, you could name any revival, and if I've studied it, I will tell you where the shaking was. That's the first thing. So don't believe that revival can come to um, a comfortable culture. So mm. when we are shaken, that isn't a good thing. It's often an agonizing thing, but it is potential for a new move of the spirit. So this first mm. thing, shaking in society. The second thing is this, without exception, there has to be a response amongst the people of God, sometimes very small, sometimes large scale. There has to be a response in humility and prayer to the shaking that is going on in society. And so I think this is a key time for us to be humbling ourselves and crying out to God. This is a key time for us to be preaching the gospel because people are asking you questions. I don't know how much longer it will last for. Our economies are all going to be shaken, even Canada's, because of what's going on with, with um, uh, you know, fuel and what's going on with the war in Ukraine. I mean, there's the knock-on effects as a global village. And, um, and a whole generation is coming through that has been through trauma. And either Jesus is the answer to that or he isn't. And if he mm. is, this is not a time for us to back down. This is a time for us to push forward. And so I, I, I strongly believe that. I don't say it casually because as pastors, we're hurting like hell. Um, so many pastors are giving up, and I understand why. It's so yeah. exhausting. It's so yeah. difficult. If there used to be any kudos to being a pastor, that's long gone. And uh, if you got into it for that, <laughs> good night. But um, I believe we've been raised up for such a time as this. This is our watch, and I believe history will look back on what we did in the window of the 12 months after the greatest trauma that we had experienced in our generation how will we be postured where will posterity find us standing what will we, our response be will it be prayerful will we be proclaiming the gospel will we be realizing with increased challenges in society that we are those who are called to bind up the brokenhearted so um yeah i i i i'm utterly convinced that this is a time for front foot faith and not to move on to the back foot and just try and survive. Hmm. What does it look like for a pastor listening right now to say, okay, I want to lean in. I want to lean into prayer and mission justice. Um, even starting with just prayer, like how, what is that? What is the next step? So it's not just this podcast. Great, awesome conversation. It's like okay, I want to do something. What does that look like as a pastor in a local congregation, sitting somewhere in Canada, to go? I want to lead myself, my family, my friends, and then my church into a posture of prayer. One of the things that I, I value about your kind of ethos in this podcast is, um, I, I know you're not focused on techniques and programs, and so. I'm not going to give you any of those um, at this at this moment, but 
genuinely it has to begin as pastors in our own hearts and and um you know 24 7 began in my heart it, it began with me awake in the night in the summer of 1999 weeping asking god to restore my first love to teach me to pray fearful that i might be that guy on the last day who presents his resume to god and says look at all the stuff i did for you and he says we didn't really know each other acutely aware that there was a massive psych psychic dissonance between what i read in the book of acts what i believed god could do and what i was actually seeing um aware that some of our programs in the church were working quite well and that if god died we might not notice they might keep working <laughs> um aware that i was outsourcing my prayer life to godly old ladies mm. and all of that came to a head in that summer just i didn't know whether i was having a breakdown or what i remember i put down my impressive theological books and started reading really simple paperbacks again. I remember reading Lauren Cunningham's book about the beginnings of YWAM. It's called, Is That Really You, Lord? Short, simple, just weeping, saying, I, I want this. Like, <laughs> we, we can do the theology later, but I want this. You know, my, my ambition is not to be standing in front of a conference. It's not to, you know, be a respected academic drinking Earl Grey tea. My ambition is to be caught up in something that feels like the presence of Jesus, that sees the miracles, that fights injustice, that disrupts society, and that changes the world. And, and, and so I, that, that was kind of what was going on in my heart. And I said earlier about concentric circles. It's not just global movements have to be rooted in the local church, but as leaders, it has to begin with us. When mm. Robert Murray McShane was, was leading a great revival in Dundee, Scotland, it was the greatest revival in the British Isles at that time. And everyone wanted a piece of him. And someone, someone got some time with Robert Murray McShane. He died very young, you know, I think he died at the age of 27. So he's a young man, but they said to him, um, you know, what, what's the number one thing that, 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 that you're focusing on? And he said this, and it's always stayed with me. Robert Murray McShane said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. No, not, not his preaching, not his strategy for the thousands who are getting saved. My personal holiness. And... Uh, so I, I think that brings you to a fork in the roads as a leader. You either say that is everything I'm longing for. That is my heart's desire. That's everything I'm craving. Or you say, if I'm honest, I've lost my desire for that. Maybe I've become too good at the job, or maybe I've become jaded and cynical with the job, or maybe it's just become a job. And if that's the place you're in, forget everything else. Forget anything else I say in this podcast. 
make an appointment with God and ask him to truly do a job on your heart because you're in danger. Mm. You're in real danger. And, and, you know, St. Augustine said, thou hast put salt on our lips that we might thirst for thee. Uh, and sometimes it's our tears that puts the salt there, but we need salty lips right now. And once, once you are in that place, because you're a leader, it will spread and you'll work out some plans and some strategies and some programs and you'll, you'll find ways of scaling it. And you'll do that thing we do. It's the psychosis of all leaders. The minute that God says something to us, we want to preach it to everyone else. You'll do that. That's okay. But you must, must begin. There was a guy called Gypsy Smith, great evangelist from a you know Romany gypsy background. And um, he said, you know how to get revival. He said, draw, get a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself and tell God, I'm not leaving the circle until you revive everything inside it. <laughs> so, you know, forgive me. I, I, you know, I'm aware I'm talking to fellow pastors and it's a pretty simple message, but I need it regularly. I need people yeah. who look at me and say, how's your quiet time? Like, how, how, What's God saying to you? Can I give you one more example, Jason? Yeah, is that please. Okay? No, this is, Pete, just so you know, like, yeah. this is the thing that we need to be talking about. I think yeah. there's this hope that someone's going to come up with like a post-COVID game plan, like a new book, a new technique, a new model. Yeah. And I think what the Lord is saying is like, I want your hearts. I want the hearts of pastors for me. And there's no book coming out to figure out this next season. And uh, so this is the conversation and I just, my heart's encouraged and I'd yeah. love for you to share whatever else is in your heart. And then also to lead us in prayer, Pete, like yeah. there's definitely a woman and a man listening who are leading in a city in Canada and they're saying, this is the thing I needed to hear today. And I just yeah. want to give us a chance to respond in prayer. So share whatever's on your heart and then pray for us. Yeah. You know, here's the trick. When the Spirit of God draws near and you remember why you love Jesus and you're just spending time in his presence, it doesn't really matter whether it looks like wide-scale revival it doesn't really matter whether it results in uh, your church getting massive or whether it stays very small. I, I really think we can ignore the scale issues and just focus on, you know, that's Lauren Cunningham, isn't it? You attend to the depth, he'll take care of the breadth. So um, that that's the cool thing is, you know, if, if you trust in other stuff, you might see something vast and everyone's applauding, but something inside you might die and you realize you've become a bonsai of yourself, you know, like, <laughs> but if you know Jesus, it doesn't really matter what scale that's outworked on, you know, Jesus. And so, um, yeah, we, you know, I was so blessed recently. One of my sons, We, as pastors, we talk, don't we, a lot about PKs. We talk, we worry a lot about our kids. We tell all the stories about it not going right. But the Holy Spirit's doing something so beautiful in one of my sons right now. 
he's 21 years old and uh he had a job in a pub two years ago and uh, he's at uni now but he, he he um it was christmas day he had to work in the pub he was pretty fed up with that and then he was he, we had a, a runaround car he was driving this car and he was going to finish his shift, get in the car, drive down to my in-laws and have Christmas dinner with us right after his shift. So he arrives at Christmas dinner. He's all shaken up. And uh, he said some drunk driver went into, you know, must have gone into the side of the car in the car park and it's, you know, it's really badly dented. And so that's fine, whatever. That's that. Forget about it. We sold the car later for about a hundred pounds. <laughs> and then uh, about a month ago, we were driving along. So this is two years later. And this son said, I want to tell you something. The Holy Spirit's been convicting me. He said that day, do you remember that day, that Christmas? He said, I, no one drove into the car. I just pulled out too fast and I, dragged the car down the side of another car and I dented up the whole other side of the car and it was totally my fault. I felt so ashamed. I lied to you and said it was someone else. And he said, I've just so ashamed. I'm, I'm so sorry. And of course, we just said we totally understand and actually we're so grateful. Here's the thing. Only the Holy Spirit does that. Hmm. He'd got away with it. It wasn't necessary. And... That is the heart of the Father towards us when the Spirit begins to do a purifying work within us beyond just the necessary to the unnecessary, to the, the, the sensitization of our spirits, the passion for his name, the desire for his presence. And the Father's heart is not judgmental. It's, wow, I love what's happening with you. Welcome home, you know. So... Um, Let's, let, let, let's pray together. Is that okay? Yeah, I love that. Lord, I pray for every person listening that you would renew in us the very commissioning fire that you put in us. I pray, Lord, that you would call us back to your presence, that you would renew in us a a hunger, an uncomfortable desire for your presence. Yeah, yeah. I pray, Lord, that we would be the church that we dream of, that we would be the worship session that we dream of, that we would be the gospel that we make so much of, that we would be uh, the ones who uh, incarnate what you're about. And, Lord, where that's a high calling, I pray grace, grace, grace upon us, where sometimes we minister grace to others, but we beat ourselves up continually. I ask, Lord, just for the Father's love, the Father's affirmation, the Father's kindness upon all those listening. Lord, we do pray that you'd revive the church in Canada. Yeah. We do pray for a fresh yes, movement of your spirit. We do pray, Lord, for thousands to flood into the kingdom. We do pray, Lord, for signs and wonders following. We pray, Lord, for new church planting initiatives. We pray, Lord, for innovative communication of the ancient gospel. We pray, Lord, for ministries that fight injustice. We pray, Lord, yeah. for your spirit to move in the corridors of power. Lord, we pray 
for you to unite the divisions within Canada, that the church mm -hmm. would be raised up as an agent of reconciliation, as a foretaste of the fact that all things are being reconciled together in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, for your kingdom to come, but Lord, I pray that it would begin in us. Yes, God. And so, Lord, we say, not for our churches, not even for our families, but for us, Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Mm -hmm. Lamb of God, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, give us your peace. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pete, for taking the time to chat. What a gift it was to be able to hear from you and to be able to pray with you there at the end. If you want to get your hands on Pete's work, we have all the links that you need in the show notes. And if I was to commend a single resource or maybe two in particular, I would say look at the courses from Pete and the team at 24-7 Prayer. They have the prayer course and the unanswered prayer course. They're both so strong, especially if you're looking to walk your church deeper into a life of prayer and get some practical and difficult questions answered. These courses are a phenomenal starting place. Well, we are so excited to jump into another fall on the podcast. We have some strong conversations lined up and some more unique, explorative episodes hitting different themes that we can't wait to share with you. But we want to invite you in to help us design it. If you know a pastor here in Canada or beyond that you would love to hear from on the podcast, or maybe you have a burning pastoral topic that you want explored, please, please, please reach out to us on Instagram or email us at contact at ccln.ca. Share away. We would love to see what we can come up with together. And before I let you go, a reminder that this podcast and the other work that we do at CCLN is only possible because of generous partners, individuals, organizations, churches, generous people who want to come alongside pastors to see them and more churches thrive in Canada. If you want to give, please consider becoming part of our monthly giving community. You can do that at cclnca slash partner. Okay, we will see you in a few weeks time. Bye for now.